This is the Spa Retailer Podcast, where we talk about retail, business, and all things related to the hot tub industry. I'm Megan Kendrick, owner of Spa Retailer Magazine. And I'm Jeff Bailey, owner of Spring Dance Hot Tubs in Philadelphia. This episode is brought to you by Strong Spas. So today on the podcast, we have Greg Welsh. He is a sales trainer in the industry and has been for many years. And I've, anytime I ask retailers who they like to have come in and do their training, his name always comes up. So thanks for coming on today, Greg. Thanks, Megan. Thanks for having me. We wanted to talk to Greg, not about giving away his sales training tips, because if, if you want to get those, you're going to have to pay him. Um, <laughs> but just to talk about training programs in general and the importance of training and the things that he sees that work and don't work when he's doing training in the industry. And so we kind of wanted to take a higher viewpoint of, of what that stuff should look like. Cool. And he's actually there in, uh, in Philadelphia with you, right, Jeff? Yes. Greg is here doing... Um some consulting with us this week. We're lucky to have him and uh, happy to have him. But I'm actually in my office and he's up in the conference room because of technology. So (laughs) (laughs) that's where he's. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, it's always great to have him with us. Well, Greg, just to get started for people who don't know you, can you give a little bit of your background in the industry and how you got into hot tubs? Sure. Uh, By total uh, mistake, like most of us. Uh, right. <laughs> it wasn't part of the plan. 1983, I, I do believe, stumbled out of school uh, in Northern California, stumbled into my first hot tub store looking for work out of college. Worked retail in uh, Northern California and Portland, Oregon for about eight or nine years, my 20s in the 80s. Give or take. Went to work for Watkins Manufacturing in 1991, I do believe, 91, 92, and spent my 30s there from about 92 to 2001, doing a variety of things. But as time went by, mostly doing sales training programs for Watkins. Left Watkins in 2001 to kind of set up shop uh, on my own in not only hot tubs, but other industries. I work in a number of other industries and kind of had a, uh, a chance to become an entrepreneur. I jumped at it about 2001, uh, but was lucky enough to and fortunate enough to continue contracting with Watkins, who I do with, to this day, and a variety of other folks in the pool and spa business, but also in other industries and in solar and furniture and musical instruments and all kinds of things through the years. Musical instruments, really? Yeah. Actually, that was my first, uh, my first real clung outside the hot tub business. I just got a phone call out of nowhere by the music retailers association who happened to be nearby and was asking for a, a trainer and they'd heard about me somehow. And so that was really my first client way back when outside the industry. And I realized I had, I could, I could do sales training in more industries than just one. So we want to think that we're special, but you know, sales is sales is sales. Yeah. And I, you know, I think more than that, Megan, customers are customers are customers, consumers Mm. are consumers are consumers. And that's, that's kind of the common thread through all the different industries I've worked with. It's not, not to belittle each and every product in the category, but the consumers are remarkably uh, the same throughout those different industries. And, and so that's kind of where I focus. Yeah, that makes sense. Greg, didn't you say you did training for Guitar Center? Uh, not Guitar point? Center per se, although a lot of their folks would go to the NAM training. NAM was at the time yes, the, the National Association of Music Merchants. I was part of their roadshow for five or six years. We traveled the country doing training programs for mostly music retailers, but also a variety of different music instrument 
organizations and folks who sold gear, whatever they might be, be it pianos or horns or guitars and rock and roll stuff. And yeah, a lot of those guys were in the class. I remember you telling telling a story that when they would um when they had their sales meetings at guitar centers like if you weren't there at the time it started the door was locked you couldn't get in on them and i was like man that's that's pretty tough more pretty more tough than training. that and and i this might be lore so i gotta be really careful <laughs> since this is being recorded <laughs> but I, I had heard rumor that uh and and you know imagine trying to get a bunch of kids to, to a sales meeting at uh, <laughs> eight or nine o'clock on a saturday morning if you could imagine that how do you do that uh, i guess the rule was if you weren't in on time the door got locked and if the door was locked and you were outside you were fired <laughs> so oh man that, 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 that <laughs> I I think I told that story because I had heard it from one of the folks from that organization at the time, and I thought it was always a great answer when people said, "Yeah, I try to have training, but they just won't show up on time." And I go, "Well, these guys <laughs> have found a way to deal with it, so maybe we need to too." So anyway, <laughs> that's awesome, yeah. Jeff. How long have you and Greg known each other? Actually, I met Greg 20 years ago this April in Nashville, Tennessee. I was. Uh, it scares me, Jeff, that you know it so specifically. Well, and I was trying, like, I did a little prep. Okay. okay. So, so you're um, scaring me. Though. But no, yeah, but that was back in uh, that was back in the days where some regional sales guys would do the first day, then you'd fly in and do the second day. And then you kept doing that throughout the country. You'd be jumping all over the country. But I remember that. I remember coming home after that training. Actually, my wife joined me in Nashville. We stayed for a long weekend. And when I got back, uh, the first guy I talked to, I asked him seven times to buy the hot tub. And he sent me an email thanking me for not putting pressure on him. (laughs) And I learned that from you. So I thought that was awesome. Great techniques, great things we learned there. It was fun. So you you brought up a little bit about, Greg, just mentioning in, in passing about um, people coming up with excuses about why they don't do training because, you know, people won't show up on time or <laughs> I'm sure there's many others about, oh, it's too expensive or we don't have time or it's one of those things that you really can't not do, right? Correct. Correct. It's, it's so critical. And if, if we could just take ourselves out of our industry and just look at other industries, it, it is across the board in any field or profession. I, my oldest brother who's, who passed away, he, he was a doctor. And I, I remember talking to him later in our careers and he was going to some conference and we, we were talking to some conference training him on something and this is he was well into his 40s he was a doctor and he I distinctly remember him be, being in training all through his 30s you know as a resident and all, all the things they make a doctor do work 100 hours a week and all that stuff and he's in his 40s and he and he mentioned he said yeah I have to get at least 24 hours worth of clinical training every year to retain certification and and it just struck me that if doc Doctors, after all the training they've been, are still required to go through training every year after they've become doctors. Why is it difficult for a salesperson to uh, continue to commit themselves to training? So, yeah, it struck me that way. And I'm jaded, but yes, it's it's critical. If a doctor's ego is, an inta- is intact enough to do continuing education, <laughs> right. then surely a salesperson can sit in on some things and learn some new tricks. Absolutely. Absolutely. Meanwhile, I think for the owners of the businesses, they're, they're always thinking ROI. And, and I understand that. And I think, you know, it's, it's important because the, the clients that I have to this day, they say, and Jeff, I'll let you speak 
for this, but they, they continue to say good training is the best return on investment that we can make in our business. Good training. And if, if we can find good training and get the right people to good training in terms of it being important and it being worth it in terms of our investment, there's nothing better. Uh, and I, I've heard that for years and I, I, I believe it. And, and yet I always think when I've got a staff of folks I'm working with either informally or formally, I'm trying to get a return on investment for the owner because I know what it's like to send an employee to a training program and how that kind of can throw the business on its head for a few days and there is cost to it. I understand that. But with good training and that is to the point and real and well-intended and all that, I think it's a tremendous return on investment. Jeff, I, you know, I'm sure you think the same way, but from your perspective, I'm sure it's unique, right? I always think of the old story. I might've said this before on a different podcast, but the father that takes his son to the boxing match and they're at the boxing match and the son is super excited. They're ringside. There's all this activity going on. And the little boy notices that the guy makes the sign of the cross as he's sitting there getting ready to go out and box. And uh, we see that all the time now in pro sports. But anyway, he never saw that before. And he says, dad, dad, what does that mean? He said, son, that doesn't mean anything if he doesn't know how to box. <laughs> and I, I think along the lines of that to what does it mean to put somebody out in front of a customer who doesn't know how to sell? That just never happens at our company and should never happen at anybody's company unless it's their competitors, right? I guess we'd all That's agree okay. on that. But um, <laughs> but the idea of the return on investment is so big to us that we actually send our staff, even when training is in our city, we send them elsewhere so that they can know what they're there for, not be distracted by all the things that are happening around them in their own little world as they're, they're staying here. We want their minds off of everything. We want them getting the good training. That's just really important to us. We, we even take it to the level of, I've got six guys going for service training this year. That's how strong we believe in that. So, How do you measure the return on investment, Jeff? Do you watch the sales numbers if, after they go to training? Do they, do they improve or... It's kind of, it's a hard thing to put a number on. So do you, do you even try to put a number to it? I have to know at any given time, anybody that's on the floor knows how to sell a hot tub to a customer and knows how to close them. And the peace of mind I get from them going to that training. And then yes, of course, looking at the numbers, but yeah, there is no doubt in my mind that, that it is easy to see um, always happens. One of the things that we always like is they, they, the moment they come back, if it's their day off, they often don't want the day off. They want to hit the floor running. Um, I have some great, great people working for us and, and that's, that's what they like to do. So yeah, I would, I would definitely say you can see it more than you think. And then of course you, you can see it in their numbers. Um, we have, um, we have, we have a lot of goals set and we have a lot of people hitting their goals. So Craig, in your job, do you have a hard time convincing owners about the importance of training? Is that kind of a thing of the past? So people started to understand that you can't just, like Jeff said, have someone on the floor who can't close. <laughs> yeah. And I think at this point in my career, I'm, I'm not even interested in talk to some, talking to a, an owner that is not sure. <laughs> they, they either right. know it or, or don't by now. My measure of ROI is repeat business. You know, how, how many folks keep sending their people back or keep hiring me back. They wouldn't do that, obviously, if they weren't getting some sort of return. It's tough for you know, me as a contractor to, to measure that, although I've worked for corporations that are 
big billion dollar corporations that do measure those numbers and they're pretty dramatic for, for me personally as a contractor. I, I don't even engage in those conversations. I just, there's so many more of them than I, that I, I, I don't get there. What kind of training do you think is effective? Because, you know, in this digital age, you've got so many ways of learning things and you know, online or in person. And there's just, it seems like there are a lot of avenues that people could go to train their people. Do you find certain ways that are more effective versus others? Yeah, I, I think I think a, a lot of online training for like certification and for just verification that knowledge has been retained is, is great. But for me, I'm a, obviously a live trainer. I have found through my school of hard knocks over the decades now that effective training is highly personal. It typically should be pretty quick moving from the heart with good intent, with egos unplugged. I remember early in my career going to many seminars where egos were very much at play that I don't know if it was a training event so much as it was a show of somebody kind of showing you how great they were. And and that always was a turnoff for me. And instead, for me personally, I always just wanted to help people. I felt a lot about what they were going through as a new person because I remember when I was a new salesperson, I knew nothing. And without mentorship and training, I would just be lost. And so good training is, it's fast moving. It's well-intended. It's, it's uh, with egos unplugged. It, it is, I think, delivered in a lot of different formats. In other words, people learn in various different ways. And I think I, I never went to school on this so much as I quickly realized at the front of a room when I was looking at, you know, 30 or 40 people that different people learn things different ways. You know, some people like to read and some people like to write stuff and some people like to see things and some people like to hear things and some people like to be involved in things. And so what I found to do in a, in a training program, be it a half day or a couple days or whatever, is mix all that up so that there's a little something for everybody and kind of during the course of a day move from a quick little lecture sec- session, quick meaning 15 minutes to, to a workshop session, to maybe a practice set session, to maybe a study session. So moving around seemed to help folks absorb information. And I, I think that so long as it's well-intended and based on things that really do help someone move forward, I think that's probably the most effective way to go. Yeah, that makes sense. Because you're right, everyone learns a little bit differently. When you're up there teaching people and training them, can you sometimes tell if your particular audience, if that type of training works for them or not? Like, can you see their eyes kind of glaze over if they're like, this is not the way I learn? (laughs) Yes, and you respond. And so I've always told people, everything looks different from the front of the room. You can can tell a lot from the front of the room. And as a, if you're a trainer worth your weight, you you know how to fly with that and you know how to read that and respond to that. Whatever whatever might be needed, you, you know that that's at play and move because of that. Greg, that could mean calisthenics in the middle of the, something you're saying, doesn't it? It, it could, mean a, <laughs> could mean a lot of things. You know, there's a lot of learning is physiology. And you, you always think about being in a training program or actually even in class when you're in fifth grade after lunch, how that can be just pretty close 
goes to torture sitting in a room with a teacher in the front after lunch or you just played outside and you'd really just rather take a quick little snooze and yet somebody at the front of the room is yakking at you. There's some things you need to do. You have to reach into your bag of tricks. I had a a great trainer once tell me, yeah, anyone can speak or train in the morning. It's the ones who can speak and train in the afternoon that are really (laughs) worth their weight because you you need to know a, a couple things to keep people engaged and involved and alive and alert in a willing kind of mode, certainly in the afternoon, even more so than the the morning. So I was in an industry seminar last year and it was the session after lunch and the guy was up there and he just stopped and looked around. He's like, what is wrong with you people? (laughs) And and he said, oh, great. I've got the after lunch slot. He said, no wonder this is going to be, you know, a challenge. And it was. Right. And and yet it's not your fault. I always, when I reach into my bag of tricks for my afternoon activities or trainings, you know, I always know that it's not the audience's fault. It's physiology. And so if you're a speaker or trainer, you need to know what to do there. And he was wrong by saying, what's your problem? It was, it was really <laughs> yeah. his problem. He has to figure that out. Yeah. That's that's what his job well, is. Well, I, I should give him a little bit of a break because the poor guy, they couldn't figure the lights out. Oh, and so tough. the lights were like, it was dark and they couldn't get it right. And so besides every Everyone being full and tired, it was dark. So it was just, it was impossible. It, it, it was, it was not you, good. <laughs> you remember those days in school when your teacher after lunch was always like the best thing ever. You'd come in after lunch and she said, now we've got a special movie plan that's instructional, but we want you to watch it. So I'm going to turn the lights off and put yeah. the movie on. And it's about <laughs> as good as it gets <laughs> when your teacher says oh, yeah. something like that, because uh, no, no matter what the subject is, is. It's just, it's all lovely. So anyway. You know what I just realized that I can't believe I didn't think about until this moment is that when I was in school, after lunch, the teacher would always read to us. It was Torture. like, we'd take a little break and, she, and she'd read to us from like a novel or something. It was, no, it was great because that was pretty much all you could process at that point was, I'm going to sit up here and read you this piece of literature. All you have to do is sit and listen. That was brilliant because she, we weren't going to learn right. anything <laughs> in that time. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Greg, regarding the training that's effective, I think to being in trainings where there's role playing. And one of the things that I'm most proud of with my sales staff is that they often will role play. Like we'll often break into that kind of thing where, you, hey, this is the, somebody says, hey, I'm struggling. We have sales meetings. Somebody says, I'm struggling with this. And the next thing you know, somebody comes up with something and it's role played. And it's, it is so unnatural in the beginning. And then when it really gets working and you get to see people using it to make themselves better and more professional, it's, it's pretty awesome. It's amazing how if you can get a team and there's many teams out there in our industry and others that have gotten through this wall where you're so used to you've practiced practicing which is another way of saying role-playing you've practiced practicing so much that it's not even practice anymore it's just it's natural and that's that's always a a great place to get to and i think jeff that's what you're talking about yeah unconsciously conscious is huge there there you go there you go So I have to say that the thought of having to stand in front of a group and role play sales, and I've seen it done, but it makes me want to die inside. No, (laughs) I don't think you're, I think you're right. Like my wife would never go to anything that she's like, absolutely not. But that's one of the first things where you realize whether they'd be good at sales or not too. But just to see the way that, like I said, my staff will often do that. It's like any other good person that's in sports or whatever. It's practice. It's practice. It's, it's knowing how to react. It's, it's always doing it, role-playing it 
with in a sterile environment is completely different than doing it with the customer. But that stuff all comes back to you when you need it. And that's that's why it's training. Greg, how do you get employees to buy into training? Like, I mean, so you've we talked about egos and, and that can be the issue sometimes, but sometimes it can be schedule and stress or if it was me, just flat out fear in having to do this at all. How do you get them to like you said, kind of cross over to the other side to where they're comfortable and engaged and still getting stuff out of well, it. Well, I think the first thing you have to kind of sell if you're in the front of the room is that, hey, we're all in this together and um, you're, you're really just trying to help them. So they know that you're coming from a good place. It, it helps if they know or they quickly realize that you've been there, you've been in their shoes. I think that helps folks buy in. And certainly, once you get beyond the first repetitions where people have tried some of the things you have recommended and they've helped them, they've worked, then they not only buy in, they want more. So in other words, I'm always thinking when putting together training, what can I help these folks with that will get them the best results the quickest so that the best thing I can hear at the end of a, a training session is I can't wait to do more of it right? That's how it's, it's part your intentions in part your experience and, and making sure they know that you're coming from their place and not talking at them rather than being with them. A lot of trainers are at people. And I, I think we should be with our trainees instead of at them. And yet when we are teaching, whatever it is we're teaching, if again, this is where ego has to be unplugged, where you're really just looking for things that you know that can help them the fastest. And so that when they utilize it or try to utilize it, hopefully it helps them. And then when it helps them, they go, wow, okay, this is helping me now. I want more of it. And I think that's, that's kind of how you do it. That's true. Are there things that managers and, and business owners should be doing before a training, before they have somebody come in that kind of helps prepare their staff for this is what we're going to do. These are the expectations. Are there things that can be done ahead of time that can help the process? Jeff? Yeah, I mean, I, I think <laughs> I think it goes back to um, knowing they can sell in advance, knowing that they have the right footing. In our case, there's some product knowledge, which is kind of shifted in training today, but getting people to know the product real well and then making sure they're excited about the product. Greg, I never thought about it, but you are thrust into rooms with a bunch of people and not everybody does want to be there. I would say that I don't send anybody to training that doesn't want to be there. So I look at it from, I'm always excited to how they're, I can't wait to hear what they tell me when they get back from it. And that's, that's the way I say, but if, as far as pre would be making sure you hire the right person to begin with. Are there things that you do, Jeff, when you get people back? I mean, you said you, you want to hear from them what they learned. Do you have them sit down and kind of rehash stuff with you? I mean, what do you do to make sure that, that it sticks? Oh, absolutely. I want examples. I, I mean, it's a casual conversation, but I want examples of what they learned. I want them to tell me how they think it's going to help them. It's different from every person. But yeah, I, I definitely ask them that. You got to hold them accountable for sure. Greg, do you leave the owners or managers with, with things to do to follow up on? Or are they involved enough in the process that they kind of know what to do after you leave to make sure that people are staying on course? I always want to give give them or help them with their key takeaways, the key things that they're going, the first two or three things that they're really going to try to implement as they re-engage customers. And a lot of times I'll tell folks, hey, hey we might have covered 30 different quick little points here 
the last day or two days or whatever, pick three and work on internalizing three of these things that you think are priorities out of the 30 that we covered. Work with those three things for, say, two, three months and, and see, see what happens rather than trying to do everything that you've learned. And, and, and a lot of times that seems to help. I've had a lot of good feedback that way. Obviously, you are coming in as an outside person and, and doing the training. Do you think it's possible for owners and managers to effectively train their own people? Or do you think that at some point employees can start to tune out those guys? You know, it's like, oh, I've heard this every day. It's the same thing. Or sometimes there's, oh, I know better than you do anyway. You're not out on the floor every day selling like I am. <laughs> do you think that there can be effective in-house training programs? Absolutely. Although I would agree with you, it could be really tough. I would say that there can be an in-house trainer because that's how I found my career. I was that guy in retail in Portland, Oregon, and to almost to the point where the owner said, I just want you to train my people. But pretty quickly, I became the sales manager who was primarily a trainer. I wore the sales manager hat, but really I was a trainer. Yeah, it, w it was challenging because, yeah, it's tough when you're seeing the same people every week, every weekly or every two weeks at that sales meeting. So I, I think you need a little bit of everything. And, and actually, quite frankly, if you don't have someone in-house always trying to prod the training forward or, or reinforce the training or, or go back to it with the rest of the team, it just gets dropped. And, and people say the same thing. You know, I went to training one time, it was great. And I really have popped my numbers for a few months, but then slowly but surely I went back to my old habits and I forgot everything you, you said and my numbers slid back down. So I'm back a year later. I, I think you need somebody in-house to reinforce on, on a weekly by weekly basis, just a couple things. And yet either going outside or having an outsider come in is still needed. You you know, you need a little bit of both. I was going to ask you how often you think that employees should be participating in training. That kind of is a good follow-up, I feel like, to, to that. <laughs> right, right. So I, I really believe, at least in our industry, there's a need for a couple hits a year of kind of formalized training. In other, in other words, kind of lock it down, be it a day or a half day or, or even two days or maybe even more a year. And yet there is a need. Obviously, we have meetings and Jeff's team here has meetings all the time to do little bits on a regular basis, but it's still really handy to either bust away or lock it down for a day or two twice twice a year in our business. It seems like somewhere around the top of the year. And then usually there's some lull or, or exhaustion that hits people later in the summer, early in the fall, where they need another hit, another kind of energy boost or another cache of information to use to kind of close out the year. That's the way I would see it. Jeff, how often do you have your guys do doing training? Well, they'll all go to training this time of year, usually for two to three days. And then I bring Greg in to help three times a year. Tomorrow, we'll bring all the team together. And like he said, lock it down and we'll have a day together. And that's uh, more of a team building, more focused on goals, focused on the changes for the year, what's going on, where the company is kind of. Uh, we spend the whole day doing that. And then the next two days, we do training independently in the different stores. Oh, okay. So like tomorrow, will you guys be closed then and everyone everyone comes together? 
No, what we do is we can at this point in our, so what we, at our size, we, um, we move people that are back of the house people that uh, work in the, um, you know, in purchasing or somewhere like that. They all go cover the stores for the day and help okay. and make sure that everybody can get what they need. But I'm a real firm believer that you've got to get everybody together. And, you know, we do it a couple of times a year at night, but that's not always a great time. That's more of a celebration time. But yeah, for a, for a full day of just hitting it hard with, with the things that are important along the lines of training, that's that that's what we'll do the next three days. Do you guys do weekly or monthly or bi-weekly kind of sales training meetings? Great. I'm sure you guys are having meetings. Do you integrate tra- training into your other meetings during the year? Not, not as much as we should. I just made a note down to talking about two or three things a week of things to try. There's often emails that are sent out weekly, random emails that go out just getting people to think differently that are a good idea or if somebody has a good idea or something's working we'll have them share that at a a weekly sales meeting that stuff's always going around by the way the first hint of knowing you need to get rid of an employee is when they don't want to do training that's the beauty of that is you know right away they're, they're not cut out for this and we've seen that over the years do we have any more training questions for greg jeff do you have anything else you want to ask him I do. I've never asked you this, Greg. Have you ever trained a horse? I never have. I'm sorry. Chinchilla? Nope. No animals. Maybe a German shepherd or two, but they're pretty easily trained. So All right. can't All right. can take no credit there. Okay. How about you? Um, do you have any other questions there? Did you, wait, wait, why did you just ask him <laughs> if he trains animals? <laughs> He's, just He's not an animal what trainer. Is, what Claire, is Claire, happening? <laughs> Clearly, he's not an animal trainer. Um, no, I just <laughs> no, I just uh, thought I'd throw that at him. But I thought maybe he'd come back and say he has done it. Did no? he say chinchilla? Yeah, that I did say uh, chinchilla. Yeah. I mean, my yeah, grandfather sure. raised chinchillas for a while, so I. I but that's all. Have. That's all I got with chinchillas. Okay. <laughs> I I don't think I could pick a chinchilla out of a of a lineup. I have no idea what one of those are. They like a lizard or what? No, are they? they're like a furry. <laughs> like they sell chinchillas for like fur. They make coats out of them and I, stuff. <laughs> I know. I know nothing about chinchillas. I just. I know. I know. I had a friend years ago that had a um, a sale at a store, and like. He decided to bring in this guy who had wild animals. And one of the things is you could see a monkey and a chinchilla. And I still laugh about it to this day. I just think that is hysterical. That's so funny. And it took place in, in uh, Marietta, not far from you, Greg. Oh, wow. How about that? Yeah. And you get into a lot of different stores across the industry. And you probably have a lot of uh, stories. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> can't tell them all. What's maybe one of the strangest things you've had happen to you when you're out on the road? Okay. Uh, I will tell a story. And I was, I was doing a two-day class for um, – uh, I'll just say I was doing a two-day sales training class. And uh, on the first day, I knew I was probably going to be in trouble because there are really a, a bunch of young kids in there, you know, Different classes take different forms in terms of age groups and who's there, professional, not professional. Anyway, but this class was a bunch of young kids. And and so I completed the first day and I could just tell it was probably, they were probably going to go out. So I ran back to my hotel room and hid 
and then uh, the next morning came on down. Gosh darn it, they they were there. They were showing back up the second day. But as I got ready to go in the front of the room, kind of setting a few things up, I noticed there was this kid kind of in the middle of the audience who was uh, literally half his face was black and blue and bloodshot. In other words, he was he he was just beat up. Why? And and I, I it was shocking, and he was dead center in my eye view, and, and yet he was sitting there, and and uh, as this is you know five minutes before go time, and people are streaming in and getting their coffee, and this poor kid sitting there, obviously all messed up, and I go up to him, and I and I went. Are, are, are you okay? What what happened? Because I knew he didn't look like that the day before. He he said to me, he said, "Well, after after class, well, we we went out and got drunk, and I I got really drunk, and I got beat up." And I went, "Oh my gosh, I'm sorry. Are you okay?" He says, "Yeah, I'm okay." And I go, well, "What happened? Who did that to you?" And, and he pointed to the guy next to him, his friend. He said, "He did it." No. <laughs> and um. And the guy, the guy just kind of grinned and nodded his head. That was something I had to have on the top of my brain the whole next six hours as I was training these people. Not only looking at this poor kid trying to, you know, stomach through six hours of training with a beat up face, but also knowing that the guy next to him uh, was the one who did it. So well, that's that's an interesting one. Yeah, so. I, I mean, I would have yeah. had those guys up there right away to role play something really intense yeah. and just oh. see, uh, you know, let's see how this shakes out. <laughs> yeah, you're tougher oh than I am. I would not. <laughs> no, I wouldn't either. I mean, we've already established <laughs> that I cannot handle any type of confrontation. So <laughs> yeah, there you go. So anyway, there's one story. Experience true spa convenience at the touch of a button. Strong Spa's fully automated DuraShield hardcover is another example of Strong's innovative engineering in a long line of industry firsts. Strong has taken the durability and strength of its hardcover and made the ease of use even simpler. Effortlessly open and close DuraShield with a simple turn of a key. Strong's DuraShield hardcover holds 1,000 plus pounds and comes with a limited lifetime guarantee. I've seen the automated hardcover in person, and it was impressive. Be sure to check it out at the next industry trade show. Let's wrap it up with the Spa Retailer 5. We took it down from 10 yes. to 5. It was Yeah, we long. decided to tighten it up a little bit. So, um, All right. yeah. so you've, you've been not just a sales trainer, but have also been in sales. So do you remember the first uh, spa or product sale that, you've, that you had? Absolutely. It was 83. It was my first year in sales. It was a, a hot spring classic. And I don't know the customer's name. I know that I think he was a, a car sales manager. I, I remember that. So yeah, I, I remember. Yeah. I think I remember because as I was writing it up, I was all nervous and I was scared to death. And I kept screwing up the invoice and I had to like do two or three right in front of him <laughs> to hit the wastebasket on the way to the completed one. And he, and he looked at me as I was writing the third time and he said, Greg, have you been doing this long? And I said, nope, you're the first one. And I, I, I'll never forget that guy. He's a nice guy. But, yeah. say it must have been intimidating to have your fair, first sale be to a, another salesman. They've got yeah, to be the hardest ones to sell that, anything that was, to. That was interesting, right? <laughs> I remember that. How about your first real job, Greg? I was a gas station attendant, Don Zarco, Wilshire Boulevard, Los Angeles. So as how, how would you phrase that, Jeff? 
I would call you a petroleum distribution engineer for Atlantic Richfield Company. That, that's correct. That sounds way more professional. Much more, much I more was professional. Pumping gas on Wilshire <laughs> Boulevard in Los Angeles. That was my first real job. Where was that located? Uh, Los Angeles, Wilshire Boulevard, Wilshire, ah, and uh, wow. basically Wilshire and La Brea, if you know LA. So yeah, it's right down the street from where we live. What's the biggest flop you've ever had in your in your business or your training time? Or I mean, this can kind of encompass a lot of different things. But we like hearing about how people have failed and then overcome. <laughs> worst flop? That's a tough one. I'm thinking back. What was like the worst worst training session I ever had? Um, probably the worst training I ever had training session I ever had was in the music products business, where I think it was up in Seattle during the grunge era. <laughs> If, if uh, anyone can remember that era sure. and it was, it was definitely underway up in Seattle at this, that time. And uh, I think I had gotten a heads up. There was a big class, but it was going to be really kind of unique. And so come to find out that of these 40 or 50 people that were coming to this class, half of them were coming from a chain of grunge rock and roll stores whom I had heard the owner was bringing the whole team in and the whole team didn't want to be there. Nice. And they were coming in uh, looking the part of grunge rock and rollers. I remember one guy's name was Seven. Mm. Technically, that's not a name. That's a number. I'm pretty sure. And and when I remember when he signed the sign-in sheet, he just wrote the number seven. No. Uh, and so that was half the group. And the other half of the group was a chain of Steinway piano sales. No. People, a, a chain of, of piano stores. Steinway, folks. You could have not have two more opposite groups. Who, I just can't. I just can't imagine like these super buttoned up Steinway people, and then these exactly. flannel wearing holes in their jeans Ex- grunge guys. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Now, it sounds like diversity to me. I like that. It. That was probably one of the tougher ones I've ever had. A full day of that, and of course, the grungers sat on one side of the room, and the Steinway folks sat on the other side of the room, and yours truly had to deal with that. So that was that was it. I would say that was one of the tougher sessions. That's amazing. I think I know the answer to this, Greg, but what was the best idea and the biggest game changer you ever made for yourself? On the training side? Just to come up, I came up with an idea of having an invitation-only sales training course where you just invited the folks that you already knew who had been through many training courses before, who you already knew wanted to get better So all that was vetted out and you just wanted to surround each of them with each other and be a part of that and kind of salute the best of the best. So that was probably the best idea I ever came up with on the training side. We'd all come up together and we all wanted to get better and we got into a a training scenario for three or four days and just kind of tried to challenge each other. That was probably the best idea I ever came up with. Yeah, that sounds great. Do you have a favorite book or TV show or podcast? You know, I don't know if you're a reader, a watcher, or a listener, but <laughs> what's your what's your you have a favorite form of entertainment these days? Yeah, you know what? I, someone asked me this just uh, last week. Yeah, so I've really gotten into rock and roll autobiographies. I don't know if it started with a, a Neil Young book or a, a couple others, but um, just read, and I've got another one working now with, on Janis Joplin, but I love rock and roll autobiographies. And probably my, my favorite one was one by um, Peter Dodgett, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. And it was just about how they came together in the late 
late 60s, 70s, and it was right during the era when all that stuff was going on, kind of like almost like uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood era kind of thing, the the movie that uh, is up for the Academy Award. It was all about that whole music scene up there in Laurel Canyon, outside of Hollywood where I grew up, and it was it's a great read. It's about the musicians and talent and ego, and yet all the other things that were going on in LA at that time, it, that was a great read. So, uh, you know, that was, that was one I just finished and now I'm working on one with Janis Joplin and, and I just finished one on Neil Young. I, I, that's, that's lately what I'm killing time with uh, when I'm on a plane. So. Greg, did you see Echo in the Canyon in the theaters or on video? No, I haven't. I haven't seen that yet. It came out last summer and that's uh, all about that yeah. exact scene you're talking about. That was uh, Bob Dylan's son. I'm drawing a blank on his name. Jacob, Jacob Dylan. Dylan. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. He, he did that and it is, uh, it's just a really great, I had no idea that Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys was the guy who set all those guys on fire. They just all loved him. Yeah. That was my takeaway from that. Yeah. How, how influential he was. I... I had I had no idea. And that whole great, that whole that movie. whole era and all the people that were really converging on that area, it was kind of like a nuclear explosion of of talent and creativity <laughs> and all that cra- and a lot of craziness too, obviously. But uh, I- interesting time and and also it was ten minutes away from my my front door, so uh, I thought it was kind of interesting to read it. So anyway, yeah, it's really yeah. neat. Yeah. That's awesome, Greg. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Yeah, thanks for hopping thank you, on Megan. with us. No, I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. podcast is produced by Spa Retailer Magazine. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SpaRetailer.com, and the Spa Retailer app. Please leave us a review and let us know what you think or email us at podcast at SpaRetailer.com.